And this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 9, beginning in the middle of verse 19, reading through verse 31. And we're seeing that Paul has a new mission. This follows right after his conversion on the road to Damascus. For some days, he, that is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in a synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who call upon his name? And has not he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I want to pray that even this morning as we gather together, that we would experience peace. Help us to walk in the fear of the Lord. Help us to enjoy the comforts of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that Your Word would multiply among us. We pray that You would do a great work. Not for our glory, but for the glory of Your great name. And it's in Jesus' name that we bring all these requests before You and pray. Amen. You may be seated. Saul of Tarsus went from being a persecutor of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ in the mere span of three days. Perhaps three days of blindness represents a type of death and resurrection. Regardless, what we know for certain is that he went on to become the greatest apostle, evangelist, and minister in the history of the church. Now, the question I want us to consider this morning is, what were some of the keys to his effective ministry? Uh, no doubt his ministry was effective, but we want to wonder this morning, we want to ask this morning, what are some of the reasons why he was so successful, if I can use that word? And I want us to consider why he was so effective, why he was so successful, so that we can learn 
from His life so that we can also be as successful or as effective as we can possibly be by the grace of God. If you're taking notes this morning, I have five keys to effective ministry this morning. Obviously, these are not the only keys, but these are five keys that we can deduct from this passage. First key I want us to consider is, if we're going to be successful in ministry, we need a profound encounter with Christ's glory. Let me say that again in case you're taking notes or missed it. We need a profound encounter with Christ's glory. As we saw last week, everything changed for Saul when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus with blazing, blinding glory. And it's interesting when we compare uh, the three chapters that describe his conversion, how they all come together. In 9.1, we're told by Luke that Saul saw a light from heaven. So some kind of bright light flashed on Saul and around Saul and his entourage that was traveling with him. And we know from 22.11 that he was blinded by this light. Literally, Saul was blinded by the light. That's why he went blind for three days. It's about noon. That sun is bright enough, but then there comes a light brighter than the new day sun. And it's so bright that it blinds Saul and he can't see for three days. And then in 26.16, as Saul's retelling this experience, he says that Christ appeared to him. So we know very clearly that this blinding light was none other than Jesus Christ in all His blazing glory. And it transformed Saul like that. In an instant, he went from being a persecutor of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ. And what made the difference? The glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think there's any of us in this room who would say uh, that their conversion experience was very similar to what Saul experienced on the road to Damascus. <laughs> Uh, we probably didn't see a light that knocked us off our high horse. Uh, we probably weren't blinded by that light. Um, nevertheless, um, we need to genuinely be converted. Um, we need God to give us a new heart. We need to be born again. We need to have new desires. We need a new purpose in life. And we need to see the glory of Jesus Christ very clearly. Um, this doesn't just have to happen during our conversion. Uh, this can happen gradually all throughout life. And actually, it should happen. That's what sanctification is. Uh, Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled faces, uh, beholding the glory of Jesus Christ, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, we are transformed into the same image. So what we need, if we're going to be effective in ministry, is to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And if we can see the glory of Jesus Christ, that will change everything. Why would Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.14, 
For the love of Christ controls us or the love of Christ compels us. Talking about why he was motivated to do ministry. Because he saw the love of Christ so clearly. He saw the glory of it in such a way that he was moved to do ministry because of that. Not because he was told to do ministry. Not because he got paid to do ministry. But because he was compelled to do it because the glory of Jesus Christ was so great. Because the love of Jesus Christ was so great that he would lay down his life. Jonathan Edwards talks about an experience that he had. And we talked about this at our Tuesday night small group a while back. But uh, he writes, Once as I rode out into the woods for my health, in 1737, having alighted from my horse, in other words, having gotten off my horse, in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk in divine contemplation and prayer. So if any of you like to pray and contemplate in the wilderness, the green grass, you can relate to Jonathan Edwards. He goes on to say, I had a view that for me was extraordinary. And that's important. In other words, he didn't have this experience every other day of his life. Uh, it was extraordinary. He says, I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conception which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears in weeping aloud I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a holy and pure love, to trust in Him, to live upon Him, to serve Him and follow Him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly Purity. Why was Jonathan Edwards such a giant of the faith? Because he had a clear vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. And it set the whole trajectory of his life and his ministry. And that's what I think we need before anything else. Before we need education, before we need gifts, we need Jesus Christ in all his glory. And when we see that, we will naturally go out and minister to other people. We won't be able to be stopped. So as we open our Bibles daily, let's pray that we would see God, that we would see Jesus Christ for who He really is. Another key to effective ministry is a Christ-centered focus. A Christ-centered focus. Look at how our passage begins. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. Think of how bold that was. He is speaking to Jews who believe in one God. They're monotheists. They believe that there is only one God 
And now he enters the synagogues and he says, Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Notice the focus of his ministry. It is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. Notice that he doesn't talk about his experience. He doesn't say, you're not going to guess what happened to me on the road to Damascus. Here, he doesn't talk about himself. And if he had talked about himself, people would have been amazed. Think of the book that he could have wrote. I even had the title for him. Blinded by the Light. New York Times, best people would want to read that. Oh, I want to read about that experience. He's not talking about himself here. He is talking about Christ. And we need to be real clear because a lot of times in the Bible when we read about people uh, being witnesses or testifying, we think of them giving their testimony, talking about themselves. To testify in the Bible really is to testify about Jesus Christ. The focus is on Christ, not on ourselves. So Saul is directing the focus to Christ. Even though he had a great experience on the road to Damascus, even though he experienced visions, revelations, even though at least on one occasion he says he was caught up to the third heavens, it was was such a profound experience. He says, I don't even know if I was in or out of the body because he was in the very presence of God in heaven. But that's not what he talks about. He doesn't preach his experience. He preaches Jesus and the cross of Christ. That's the focus of his ministry. Now, how did he do that? He doesn't say how specifically he does in this passage, but I think it's safe to say that he proves that Jesus is the Son of God and that he proves he is the Messiah by pointing the Jews to the Old Testament Scriptures. And of course, at this time, uh, there weren't any New Testament Scriptures because Saul, also known as Paul, hadn't started writing many of them yet, as well as the other um, apostles who wrote some of the New Testament. But this is what we read in Acts 18.28. For he, Saul or Paul, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And I think it's very clear, turning back to Acts 9, that he was doing the same thing. And no doubt, he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. I imagine him turning to Psalm 110.1 and asking the same question that Jesus asked, asked the Jews. Uh, whose son, um, who's the son, or the, or the Messiah, excuse me, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they would say, David. And then he would say, well, how about Psalm 110.1? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If he's David's son, how can he be called the Lord? Because he's also God in the flesh. And no doubt he turned to many passages. No doubt he said, hey, consider Isaiah 9. 6, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then if you read on, you'll notice that not only is the government on his shoulders, but he's called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Let's put those two together. That's a strange juxtaposition. Child, Son, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. How can that be? Unless He's the God-Man. And you know that the Jews had no answer to what Saul was saying. Just like the Jews during Jesus' day had no answer for what He was saying. So Saul had a Christ-centered focus that was grounded in the Scriptures because he understood the power of God. And we want to do the same thing. We want to direct people to Jesus. Because He's the one that's going to change their lives. Third key to effective ministry, divine seasons of necessary preparation. Let me say it again in case you're taking notes. Divine seasons of necessary preparation. Now here, uh, between verses 22 and 23, we have to insert Galatians 1, 15 to 18. And let me show you how it fits in. Turn ahead to Galatians if you have your Bible. Galatians 1. And just remember, when Luke was writing Acts, it wasn't his purpose to mention everything that happens in Saul's life. The book of Acts would have been twice as long as it was. But we have to harmonize a couple of passages. We have to harmonize what takes place in Acts 9 with um, what Paul says in Galatians 1. Galatians 1, we'll begin at verse 15. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. We'll see that in a little while, that he does go up to Jerusalem, but at this point he didn't yet. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, also known as Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here we're told that immediately after his conversion, before he goes up to Jerusalem, and we'll see in Acts that that's coming up pretty quick, but before that happens, we see that he went up to Arabia, or went into Arabia, and he was there for three years in the wilderness. And then he comes back to Damascus, and then he goes up to Jerusalem and for the first time, visits with two of the apostles. Now, here's the question. What happened during those three years in the desert? And the fact of the matter is, we are not told. Can we make some educated guesses? I think we can make some educated guesses. Um, Some have said... Um, that the three years in the desert corresponded with the three years that the other twelve apostles spent with Jesus. Um, Possible. Um, No doubt, he was praying and meditating on the Scriptures. 
would we not all agree that that's a safe assumption? Um, he has been converted. He now sees that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Messiah. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you, you learn something new in theology and you say, this changes the way I'm, I'm going to look at a lot of passages. And all of a sudden you say, wait a second, I, I, I got to look at these passages all over again because in, in light of what I have learned, this has implications. Think of Saul. <laughs> he, he just learned that Jesus is the Messiah. You know what he's saying? This has implications. <laughs> Absolutely huge. I, I've got to read the Old Testament all over again to see how this relates to Jesus Christ. So perhaps we could consider his three years in the wilderness uh, an MDiv <laughs> where he studied at the feet of Jesus. Um, we also know from other places um, that he talks about different revelations that were given to him. He mentions that in Galatians 1, 11 to 12. Uh, probably during this time, he studied the Scriptures and received revelations from Jesus Christ so he could better understand the Scriptures. Uh, studying is so important. Uh, Billy Graham and others have said, if the Lord said to me, you have four years of ministry, many men have said, I would spend three years studying one year ministering. And I, I agree with that. Uh, many not formal education, but I thank God and I praise God for my education because of what I've learned. I think it's absolutely valuable. Yes, there's things that you will never learn until you get out there. Um, it's kind of like being a doctor. You, you have to do an internship. You have to do hands-on. But let me ask you, if you were sick and you needed an operation, would you want your doctor to have a good educational background? <laughs> yeah, you would. You'd want him to do study and experience, not either or, both and. And I believe Saul was preparing for greater ministry, even though he might have felt at this time that he was being placed aside. And maybe some of you think that. You feel like maybe, oh, I'm, I'm being placed aside. I want, I want to get out there. I want to do ministry. And you feel like you're on the sidelines. And you're like, I want to get in the game. You might be in the game more than you realize. God may be preparing you for the game. Uh, no good athlete. You're going to watch football this afternoon. No good athlete just goes out there without training, working hard. And it's the same for the Christian life. And maybe a better metaphor is not an um, athletic metaphor, but maybe that of the battlefield. Uh, it's good that soldiers are prepared for war. And that's why a lot of us parents are very careful about throwing our children out into the battlefield until they're prepared for battle. We say they're not ready. We're going to train them a little longer before we throw them out there to the wolves. Yes, the day is coming when they, like the disciples, will be going out, spreading the good news, but they will be like lambs among wolves, but we want to make sure they're ready. God has to get us ready. And sometimes it hurts because we are so anxious. We want to get out there. We want to be used. We want to make a difference. And our hearts are right. Our motives are right. But God is kind of holding on the reins and saying, not yet. You're not ready. I have to do more work with you. You're not ready. I have to develop your character further. Really, Lord, I'm not ready yet. And the Lord said, yeah, you're not ready yet. Trust me. But let's, let's not despise that. God has His time. Um, 
And the time in the wilderness is very crucial. Think, think of Moses. In some way, it could be very depressing. You know, he's in Egypt. Finally, at the age of 40, he thinks, okay, finally the people will recognize that God is raising me up to be the deliverer. He steps forward. He's going to intervene on behalf of his people. And they say, who are you? Who are you to judge between us? And they say, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptians? Oh, no, they found out what I'd done. And what happened to Moses? Runs away. And what happens to him for the next 40 years? Taking care of sheep on the backside of the desert. 40 years. What is God doing? 40 years being wasted away in the wilderness. It wasn't being wasted away, was it? He was being prepared for ministry and his ministry was so great it took 40 years to get him together so that the last 40 years of his life would be so significant. God knows what he's doing. Let's not begrudge the wilderness. God is at work. He's molding us. He's shaping us. He's getting us ready for greater ministry. A fourth key to effective ministry, and this may be another hard one, an appreciation of our weaknesses. Let me say that again. An appreciation of our weaknesses. Not just a reluctant acceptance of our weaknesses, but an appreciation of our weaknesses and embracing of our weaknesses. Twenty through or excuse me, twenty three, when many days had passed, and again that's more than three years later, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, we read that and we think, well, of course, he would run for his life. They were trying to kill him. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, nothing is more exhilarating in all of life than to be shot at and missed. This is Saul here. Talk, talk about exhilaration. They, they are trying to kill him. He escapes. But you know how Saul describes this? Exhilarating and humbling because it was a sign of his weakness. Turn to 2 Corinthians where Saul describes this occasion. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Wow, that's countercultural, isn't it? The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who blessed me forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Saul describes that and he says, this shows my weakness. So in 2 Corinthians 11, 30-33, Paul says, that's a sign of my weakness. That's a sign of what a coward I was 
first sign of my life being in danger and I ran for my life because I'm a wimp, because I'm weak, because I'm a coward. That's who I am. I don't want you to think that I'm the great Apostle Paul. I'm weak. I'm weak. Cowardly. Fearful. And here's the evidence of it. I ran for my life. First sign of danger. But weakness is important. In 2 Corinthians 12, he goes on to talk about the importance of weakness. He talks about the thorn in the flesh. Now, three times he pleaded with God to take it away. And God said, no, no, no. And then in verse 9, we read, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Tell me. Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Here's the sad irony. Some of us are so strong that we're weak Christians because we're relying on our own strength. God, help us to be weaker so that we would rely more upon Him and His power. Will God use your strength? Will God use your gifts and your abilities? Yes, He will. But God will also use your weaknesses, your failures, your blunders, your mistakes. God will use those things as well so that He can be magnified in your life. You know what I think Paul is basically saying in Corinthians about his initial experience with ministry? I think he's saying, I was a failure. It looked like I started off so well, I was being bold, but then I ran for my life. I was a failure. I ran away. But here's something we have to learn. Failure is the door to success. That, how do you succeed? By failing, failing, failing. And then when you get up, maybe the hundredth time, maybe the thousandth time, when you finally get up again, you succeed. I, I love the story about a salesman who made a huge mistake. Cost his company $100,000. CEO of the company called him into his office. This employee is saying, I'm, I'm in trouble. I've cost my company a lot of money. Uh, comes into the CEO's office, sits down, um, I understand you cost us some money. Uh, let's talk about what happened. Talked about what happened, went back and forth, worked through it, and CEO said, okay, well, I don't have anything further. And, and the employee could hardly hardly believe what he was hearing. He was waiting for the other shoe to drop. So he, he just had to say it in a straightforward way because it was too good to be. He said, you mean I'm not fired? And the CEO said, not fired. He said, we just spent $100,000 educating you. <laughs> no, you're not fired. Learn from your mistake. Same way in the Christian life. Let's just learn from our mistakes. God's not firing us. Get up. Learn from your mistakes. Move on so that you can be even more effective. Um, by the way, you may know that in Acts, um, we have Saul of Tarsus, but uh, he's mainly known to us not 
as Saul of Tarsus, but the Apostle Paul. Um, there's different explanations. I've heard some say that his name was changed from Saul to Paul. It probably wasn't changed from Saul to Paul. Um, he probably had two names. Um, in this culture, it was common to have two names. Um, when I was ministering at the Korean church, uh, many of them would have Korean names and they would have American names. Um, very similar in the first century. So he probably had two names to begin with. Uh, but you might be wondering, well, then why did he go from being Saul of Tarsus to be mainly calling himself Paul? And I think the best explanation is given in uh, those names and what they indicate. Uh, he was named Saul after King Saul. Uh, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So being a fellow Benjamite, he was named after the great King Saul. No doubt his parents named him that so that he would become like a great king. But he chose to be known as Paul. In the Greek, it's Paulus, and it means small. And I think that's significant. Instead of saying, I'm Saul, named after the great king, the first king of Israel, he would prefer to say, I'm small. The apostle, small. That's me. Just a small Christian serving a big God. And one final key um, to effective ministry, encouragement that moves beyond our comfort zone. Encouragement that moves beyond our comfort zone. Turning back to Acts, picking up verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, that's interesting. They were afraid of him, and I think this includes the twelve apostles as well, because they were still in Jerusalem at this time. They were all afraid of him. They didn't believe him. They thought this was a plan, a scheme. He's pretending to be a disciple. They didn't believe that he was genuinely converted. But, another one of those big butts in the Bible. Let me just move on. But Barnabas took him. And some have said that in the Greek, the indication is that he took him by the hand. But Barnabas, and do any of you know what his name means? Jackie doesn't. Anybody else? Anybody remember? Son of the help? Encouragement. James and John were sons of fun. Son of encouragement. And this was a name that he was given because he was such an encourager. And here we see his encouragement right here. And I think we could call it a risky encouragement. How did Barnabas know that Saul was genuinely converted? We're not told, but if I can read between the lines a little bit, he went to Saul. He got beyond his fear. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to go and I'm going to ask him. I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to ask him. Now, now, tell me what. Tell me about your conversion experience. You say you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what I've heard. They're all afraid of you over there, including the twelve. They don't believe it. They think you're a phony. Tell me about your conversion experience. And he heard the story, maybe from Saul himself, maybe from Ananias, maybe from others um, that heard him. Uh, but he was willing to go. And he took him and he brought him 
Notice, to the apostles, not the disciples, here we're told specifically, the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So once again, he's in and out. And we know from Galatians that he's there um, a mere 15 days before he leaves. So another just short stint of ministry. And he has to flee again. But isn't it great how uh, Barnabas uh, brought them together. And earlier we saw that God used Ananias to minister to Saul, even though at first Ananias also was afraid to go to Saul because he was a persecutor of the church. This is what John Stott wrote in his commentary, and I thought this was so good. He said, True conversion always issues in church membership. It is not only that converts must join the Christian community, but that the Christian community must welcome converts, especially those from different religious, ethnic, or social backgrounds. There is an urgent need for modern Ananiases and Barnabases who overcome their scruples and hesitations and take the initiative to befriend newcomers. And I thought, that is so important. Just even looking at our church right here, think of all the different backgrounds, uh, religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. Think of all the different convictions we have. Uh, think of all the different household rules we have. How is such a diverse group of people going to come together? By us going out of our way, being gracious, being encouraging, being intentional and bringing people together, being intentional and in working through difficulties. No, no, no. You misunderstand Saul. He really is converted. No, no, no. You really do misunderstand your brother. He doesn't mean it like you're taking it. Encouragement so crucial in the body of Christ. Is there any wonder that we're told to build each other and encourage one another up daily? This is so crucial for effective ministry so that not just individuals, the church as a whole can be shown. We need to encourage one another. So important. And we see that taking place with Saul. He was encouraged. The church was encouraged. So that ministry there uh, became strong. I love how this passage closes. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Now you have to pause there for a moment. That's that's really quite odd if you're reading carefully uh, because we're told that Saul had to flee for his life because they were trying to kill him. Because he was preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Because he was preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. They tried to kill him. Uh, we saw earlier that persecution greatly took place in Jerusalem so that everybody had to scatter except the apostles. But now we're told that there's peace in the midst of persecution. How can that be? Because peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence and power 
of God. So even in the midst of this hostility, the church has peace. And again, I, I think of a battlefield scene. It really is possible, and we've seen this with Christian soldiers, it really is possible to be in the middle of a war with bombs blowing up within yards of you to have bullets whistling by your ears and to be at peace. Because the sovereign God is in control of your destiny. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it's multiplied. I love that too. Because we're told that the church can't be stopped. We sang that earlier. Church is one foundation. It will not be stopped. Jesus will build His church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And even though the opposition against Saul, against the church, is great, they are at peace. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. They're experiencing comfort. The comfort of the Holy Spirit and the ministry is expanding. The kingdom is going forth. And if you listen real carefully, if you get quiet, if you listen real carefully, you can hear the crumbling of the Roman Empire as the kingdom of God goes forth and displaces and destroys the kingdom of man. And if we listen carefully today, we will hear other kingdoms crumbling one by one as Jesus continues to build His church and to build His kingdom so that one day the rock that Daniel talks about will cover the whole earth so that a day will come when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the great example that Saul of Tarsus, known mainly to us as the Apostle Paul, was. Thank You for his ministry. And Father, we ask You to strengthen us as we do ministry. And Father, we don't do ministry by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Rather, we do it by recognizing just how weak and feeble we are in and of ourselves. And by recognizing just how great and glorious You are. Father, I do pray that every single week as we open Your words, we gather together, we will catch, we will catch greater glimpses of Your glory. And at the same time, we will see also just how small we really are so that by the time we're ready to die and enter into the presence of our Lord, we see that You are majestic and we are absolutely enthralled with You. And we see that we really are so tiny and puny and utterly insignificant that we're amazed that You're mindful of us. But You do love us. You are mindful of us. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is the greatest demonstration of Your love and mindfulness of us. So we thank You for that. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.